In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's a tricky slide. I didn't know if it was the one that moved, so I, I didn't say anything for a second. So we just do a little bit of review on Matthew. I know you're getting sick of it. That is ideal. They say when you're trying to give someone, uh, talk about anyone who's been part of a corporate world and they talk about a vision, right when you get sick of sharing a vision, that's when people just start to st you know, catch on to it. And it, maybe it's true with the book of Matthew. Maybe you're pros, but we'll just review a couple things. Matthew, his main job originally was a tax collector, which means nobody liked him, uh, maybe his wife, but uh, nobody liked him, and he made his money off the backs of other people. He was looked at as a betrayer, but then the Lord called him. He's in his tax collector's booth. He's just working like you have jobs, and he goes by, and the Lord says, come follow me, and he does, and he is, it's so extraordinary, such a change that he says, I have to throw a party and show all my friends who this Jesus is, and it's so extraordinary that he says, I want to write a book, and I want to tell everyone about this. So he's trying to tell the Jewish people and emphasize that the one who is going to come, Jesus, is the promised Messiah. This is a huge, huge deal. So the main, we've had a couple main points as we looked at this. Number one is uh, the way that Jesus looks at people. We read, remember, we've talked about Splunkna. He feels it in his gut when he sees the people. His heart goes out to him. And the main descriptor we have of human beings by Jesus very, very often, at least in this Matthew 10, this comes up at least three times, is that they are like sheep. And remember, sheep are stupid, and most of their problems are self-inflicted. And so that's what we have to look forward to, is when God sees us, he looks at us as sheep who are kind of dirty and need constant care and do dumb stuff, but still, but still, God's heart goes out for us. And even though he sees, and when he sees us, he knows what he has to do to save us, his heart goes out to us. So part one, that we looked at was uh, the, to love and have compassion on people like Jesus, right? That's part one. That's a, that's a key thing. But now this is moving on. It's, he's saying, okay, have compassion like that. And it actually means we have to do something about it. We said uh, the kind of the main thing, there's no consumer Christian in that sense. And we're probably in danger of any society in history, I think, of seeing our Christian faith as this kind of consumer mentality. We're going to pay professionals. They're going to do that. They're going to take care of the poor. And how, never ask me, God, to know enough about theology to try and explain it to my friend in some kind of way. Never ask me to help, help the poor. Never ask me to go help the kids or teach the kids or do all these other things. You know, I don't have time for that because most of our life, we're trying to get as much stuff out of our life as we can um, I'm teaching some church planters. That's one of my jobs I get to do. And we have principles. And one of my principles, which sounds really dumb, you know, you should pr proclaim the gospel is one of them. But one of them is automation. As much stuff as you can get out of your life that you physically have to do, do it. Like pay the bills automatically. And if you can send reminders automatically for people serving, do it. Like all this stuff. So we, we think that way, right? I would guess most of your life is fairly automated. If they had an automated lawnmower, which they do, I've considered buying it. I thought, huh. But then I read the reviews, and I don't feel like buying a new one every two years, so I just use my push mower. 
because I don't like the, 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 the gas, and so I just push it off and I'm done. The, the same thing is true in your life, but Christianity, you can't do that because Jesus says, I am actually sending you. You're the one I'm expecting to go and reach people. And the gist of that, where it kind of all shakes down, is that there's no one quite like you. And there's no one who has your experiences. There's no one who's been through the same things you've been through, the same losses you've been through, the same frustrations you've been through, um, your, soul, your gender, the way you've seen things, the way you grew up, which makes it God does not put you places by accident. Like the world likes to say we're a, we're a blob of chemicals that somehow threw against the wall and that's how we function. And, and that's not true at all. God says that you are gifted and you have abilities and I've crafted you for a specific reason but you can't really do those things unless you get into other people's lives. So that's the pump-up speech, and you're going, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can, there's people at work, and sometimes they're the hardest people, right? That's the phrase. Sometimes the people who are hardest to love are the ones that need it the most. And you maybe went, and you went to work, and you said, all right, I'm going to try and love like Jesus loves. I'm going to have compassion, which is really good. And that's not the end of the chapter, un unfortunately. It would be really great if we just shared our faith and people picked us up and they like carried us around the office because they were so excited to do that. But this is, this is how it continues in Matthew. Uh, can you pull the black slide behind that, Amy, if you get a chance? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Uh, but the father, father speaking through you, brothers will betray brother to death. So this is talking about the consequences of you of sharing your faith. The father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I don't know what that means. Uh, the student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like the teacher and the servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So we read all that, and the reality is, like, no matter how much compassion you have, no matter how much you love people, no matter how much your heart goes out to them, no matter how much you feel it in your gut, no matter how much your thoughts go with people, people are not going to like you. Like, there's going to be pushback, and why is there pushback? Because if you're doing the mission of God as you follow the book of Matthew and you see what Jesus did, not only was he super nice and healing and making contact with those who are ostracized, but he told people the truth. And if you're going to tell people the truth, there's going to be pushback. He mentions two different spots. The one is, um, so we're talking about you will get pushback at the very least, and sometimes you will be even persecuted. And some people look at that as a badge of honor, which means if I'm a Christian, that means I should be persecuted. And the more I'm persecuted, like this is good. Why do we know that that's not the case? Our whole goal is just to be persecuted. There won't be any Christians. I, I mean, the Christians I know are very nice people and very loving and caring, and they reach out to people. So that is saying that there's something solid that's going on. So if we are running into some of these things, maybe we're missing two of his directives. Number one, if you're being persecuted, go somewhere else. Uh, maybe, maybe you're sticking around too long as you're talking to people and telling them the truth a little too often. And this gets into another principle the Bible talks about. Don't put your pearls before swine. That when you, you can share and share, but eventually someone says, you know what, I've had enough, and you go, oh, that's fine. Even the disciples, as he sent them out, they shook the dust off their feet, and he said, move on to the next place. The other one that he talks about is, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, therefore be shrewd, 
as snakes and innocent as doves. Maybe the reason people don't like some Christians is because they seem duplicitous. Maybe it's because they seem uh, like hypocrites. Maybe because they do all these different things. That is not some badge of honor to say, no one likes me because I'm a Christian when really you're just a jerk. So where does this put us? No matter what, you're going to get pushback. And why is it that we have pushback? I want to talk about at least two different things. Number one is Jesus, by his claims, the, ex- the, the extreme nature of his claims is offensive. If you make minimal claims, just something in the middle, it's not going to bother you. If I say I'm a reasonable, I'm a decent pastor, I don't picture too many of you like being mad about that. If I say I'm a decent father, that's, that's, not, that's not that big a deal. If I say I'm decent at basketball, this doesn't bother any of you. But what happens if I say I'm the best father in the room? Like, that's an extreme claim. Does that, does that put you on edge? <laughs> it should. It's, right? Like, does that bother you? What if, what if someone said, like, I am the most handsome person in the whole planet? Like, it, when anyone makes extreme claims, you're going, eh. Right? You can think about people you worked with, and they claim that they're best, and it drives you nuts. Or you could see people on TV that I'm the greatest, like Muhammad Ali. And when you make extreme claims, you're naturally going to have people that say, you know what? It just might be true, or it's not. When Jesus makes claims, what kind of claims does he make? He doesn't just say, I'm a pretty good guy. N- that won't bother anybody. I'm super nice. That won't bother anybody. But instead, he makes three claims that are pretty key. So you think about when he talks about Abraham, he's talking with the Pharisees. He said, before Abraham, I am. And he makes a reference all the way back to that Yahweh, that, that tetragrammaton, those letters to say that before Abraham was in existence, they were the sons of Abraham. Keep that in mind. So like he was the guy. Jesus said, listen, you guys like Abraham, but before him, is me because I'm God. So he makes a claim that he's God. He said he saw the angel, he saw the devil thrown down like lightning. So he's saying like since the creation of the world, I've been around. And he also tells the people that he will judge the world. That's pretty extreme. And so now we have three claims that says Jesus, I, not only am I God, not only did I create the world, but I'm the one who's going to judge the world. When you make extreme claims, people are not going to like it. So you got one of two options. One, you can just bristle at it and say, I'm never going to do that. Or two, you have to, that really the only option is to make your whole life consistent with what Jesus says and does. That's the only option you have. There isn't like, just do your best. Work really hard. Jesus says, here are the options. If it is true that I am God, if it is true that I was there to create the world, if it's true that I'm going to judge the world on perfection, your only choice is to totally conform your whole life to him. That's the message you bring. And so when you go out as Christians, it's not only being nice, but it's proclaiming the truth of this very God who says this, and many, many people don't like that. There's a second part to it, though, that's equally not as great. So motivational speakers that people like, right? So I'm going to just say there's a motivational people speaker that people like. They say, you are here, and I'm going to try and motivate you to get here. Like your best coaches, like uh, teaching music. Like you are here, and I'm going to try and raise the bar for the whole band and bring them here. You go into a job. Some of you have taken over projects, or you've taken over departments at work, and you step in, and they say this, hey, uh, we need your help. This is a mess. Do you think you can bring it here? So that is this idea that says, hey, If we work hard, if we bring it together, we're going to get somewhere pretty amazing. And so when Jesus steps into your life, 
as God, as the creator of the world, as the one who's going to judge the world, does he say, listen, if we work together, if you dig deep, if you commit, there's extraordinary things that you can do. That's not quite, not quite how it works. When you read what Jesus says, it's not like the pillars of Islam and it's not the seven, the ways of Buddha. Instead, Jesus says, listen, you are utterly worthless. You are a sinner. You bring absolutely nothing to the table. And so I think a lot of people would be pretty excited if the message of Jesus was, we're going to just help you get from here to here. And you can look around the whole world and you can see Islam functions like that. You can see Mormonism functions like that. Jehovah Witness functions like that. Buddhism functions like that. Hinduism functions like that. Every single religion on the whole planet works like, hey, come along and we're going to take you to, and Scientology works like that. Everyone is, you're here and we're going to take you to a better place. Jesus is not a teacher in that sense. Jesus came as a savior. And so part of the offense that you have is not only is he the creator of the world, not only the one who judges the world, not only is he God, but he says, I came as savior. Which is probably the most offensive point. And so when you put people in two different camps, that would be one of them. The most offensive point that you come when you see people. You can think of somebody at work. You can think of someone down the street. You can think of someone that you want to have a conversation with. You have to go to them and say, I have the true God, in God's word, and the only way you go to heaven is believing in him. Exclusivity is completely offensive. Completely. So you all have hobbies. Um, and I'm gonna, I know you play golf, so you play golf. What if I told you there is only one way to be a good golfer? Uh-huh. What if I told you there is only one diet you can have to be healthy? There are people who do that, and they're offensive. And you're like, please go away. I don't want to talk to you anymore. There's only one place you can shop, and there's only one phone brand you can use, and there's only one computer that's decent, and there's only one kind of shoes you should ever wear. They're the most annoying people in the whole world. Now, keep in mind, we're now the most annoying people in the world. But that doesn't mean that we're bigoted, and it doesn't mean that we're narrow-minded. So I'll give you an example. There's a fire outbreak in this room. And there's only one door instead of like 12. So there's only one door in this room. And what happens if like in the midst of the smoke, someone says, hey, I found the door. Do we sit here crackle, crackle, crackle? That person is so narrow-minded. Now they might be right or they might be wrong, but they're not narrow-minded. They're not bigoted. They just say, I think I have the truth. And as a Christian, this is one of the challenges you have. You have to go into a world and say, we have the truth. And nobody likes to hear that. And with that brings offense. And with that brings pushback. And with that brings people who are not going to be happy that you're talking to them. So what does Jesus say? He tells us there's a couple consequences. I don't know if we can get it up there, so I'll just read it from here. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul. And they, and they put one as capital. This is God is the only one who's control of that. Why, why does this bring it up? And now it goes through all this other worries that we would have. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside my father's care. 
and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not be afraid. You were worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown my Father in heaven. So this is maybe the hardest part of, of the whole thing. Uh, trying to imagine who you're going to share God's word with, that you're going to get pushback with, who's the most challenging in your mind? And I think sometimes it's colleagues. I think it's the people I know the most. And when I think about my own life, I'm afraid I'm going to wreck a relationship, and I shared that before, like that takes away. It's not, it's set on a plane, like who cares? Like I don't see this person ever again. You see someone in the grocery store, that's not a big deal. But when it's someone that you care about, and that's someone that you see a lot, and you're worried that this is going to change, and God says, in fact, that it will change. If the message of Christ is offensive, some people are going to reject it, and in turn, they're going to reject you. But don't be afraid of them, it says. Be afraid of God, which gets down to values, and I want to just talk for a second. We'll do it very briefly, and we're going to do more about this in about a month, but I read a couple articles, and I think the biggest challenge that we have in America is not necessarily our colleagues, but I think some of it comes down to our family. I was reading an article. I got a, uh, This was the title of the article. Are we the worst parenting generation ever? The collapse of parenting, how we are ruining our kids when we, treat, we don't treat them like adults. The worst part was, so you can imagine the gist of these articles. Uh, we don't have enough meals together, even though all the stats say when you have dinner together, this is one of the positive things that happen. We don't do, uh, we're so busy doing all these other stuff that we forget like the simplest things. We're so addicted to our phones that when we actually do sit down with our kids, that we're, we're sitting on a phone as an adult and not paying attention to our kids. When you're in a car, that people have headphones in and they're not doing this. The classic picture of a restaurant, everyone has seen that. And I always think that when Amy asks me, hey, can you look this up? And I look it up, and when I pull it out, I just picture other families going, Look at that family. They don't care at all. Right? Like, I was guilty of half of these things. Like, is there enough restriction on, on electronics? Is it ruining our kids? Do we spend enough time with our kids? Do we treat our kids like adults? Do we give them responsibility? Stanford, there's a, a lady who was an admissions officer at Stanford. And this is like a pretty solid university, I think. I mean, I didn't apply there. But, I mean, like, I think it's pretty solid. But she said, we have adult kids, basically that can't make a decision without their parents. So like all these things are flooding in. The guilt of me as a parent saying like, what have I done and what have I not done? But where does this all get to? The one article of how we're ruining our kids by not treating them like adults. Uh, she was in the doctor's office. He's a doctor. And the, the son is like 10 years old. And the mom was interpreting uh, the stomach aches to the doctor. And the doctor's trying to listen, and he's frustrated trying to talk to the son to say, like, what's actually happening. But the mom is talking the whole thing. And then the mom says, like, Kathy, you're so stupid, that's not even what's going on. And this is a 10-year-old to his actual mom. And the doctor is just appalled. So where does this all go to? Even two degrees, more than any other generation, our kids are a huge deal. And for the first time ever, we have kids that pe parents are concern, maybe because of the latchkey results of growing up like I had in the 80s and things like that. But for the first time ever, we kind of want to be friends with our kids. And for the first time ever, we're a little afraid more about what our kids think about us rather than what we think is best for our kids. So where does this all shake down? 
I think there's parents that are afraid to go and tell their kids not only the compassion of Christ, but the truth of Christ. I run into adult parents who talk about what their kids believe, and their kids are in their 20s and 30s, that greatly affects how they look at their own faith. This is hard. You got to go outside these doors and you think, how in the world could I ever do it? I think here's the key. If you're, you're trying to think, how could I ever share my faith if I'm going to face persecution? No one's going to like me. Even my own kids, as it said, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. God says you'll never be alone. No matter what. When you step outside those doors, you, you'll never, ever be alone. On your deathbed, if no one else is around, you'll never be alone. The Apostle Paul, at the end of, I think it's 2 Timothy, he's talking about his friends had deserted him, but he, did, he wasn't mad at his friends because God was enough. And when you step in to have these conversations with people you really care about and you're worried, are they going to hate me? God says, my love for you is enough. And how do we know that? Who's with Jesus when he died? Like, nobody. They had all scattered. And when Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't like we have. We always have God with us, but he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utter aloneness, taking on the punishment that we deserve so that he could say, I want to give you something that's truly amazing. I want to give you something valuable. When the Bible talks about value, and we started this whole series talking about value. Is it wealth? Is it our family? Is it all these other things? When you have something valuable, that means that nothing else, you'd be willing to give up anything else to hold on to it. And that's how the Bible talks about God's word and the truth. A man who found a treasure in a field sells everything so he can buy that field. A man finds a precious pearl and he gets rid of everything so he can hold on to that pearl. The gospel that you have, that God has given you, God expects you to do something with it. When he sent Abraham out, and this may be our last point, when he sent Abraham out, he said, I am blessing you. Why did he bless Abraham? It wasn't so he could be like Job's friends and say, God really loves us because we're awesome and look at all the blessings we have. God gave him those blessings so he could give them to other people. God has given through the Holy Spirit the truth of Jesus, the peace of Jesus that you know are never alone. You have the forgiveness of Christ. That's not just so you can say how awesome you are and how much God loves you. It's so that you can take this very thing and step outside and not only love and see people the way Jesus does, but also share the truth like Jesus says, no matter the consequences. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you've given us the blessing of your word, that you've transformed our hearts through the gospel. Help us always to look at what you say in your word and recognize this. Say it first to us that we have nothing that we bring to the table. You are our Savior. You gave up everything for us so that we can know the peace and joy. But that's a blessing that is not meant to be held on to. You've called each of us into ministry so that we can go outside these doors and we can have hard conversations. And some of those, probably the hardest conversations that many of us will have will be with our own family members. Uh, brothers or sisters who don't know you, um, aunts and uncles who don't care about your word. We pray that we have the courage to stand before them and as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves, step into their lives and show compassion and show love and show them the truth, the exclusivity, the offensive message of the gospel, but the only message that can save. Uh, we also ask that you're with uh, Brantley Holly, 
who uh, is having some trouble with his heart. He's looking into that, so we pray that you can also be with him. Uh, we pray that you look after him. As a young boy, it's got to be scary as he's getting all these tests and people in, uh, no doubt, like hazmat suits. Uh, but we pray that you give him his courage and you give courage to his parents to be with him as they go through this difficult time. We pray that you're with all of our, uh, we're talking about loneliness, and as we, we suffer COVID, we have so many families and, and people who are compromised in a way that they can't come to worship and enjoy the fellowship that we have. So we pray that you're with each of them. We've had good conversations talking with them, but that's not the same as being together as a Christian family. So we pray that you can be with them, that you are always enough, and they're not always yearning just for human contact because they have enough knowing where they stand with you. Uh, wrap your arms around them to know that you are their family. We ask this in your name. Amen.